Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I want to welcome you again to Calvary Chapel. Such a blessing to have you here. You guys really blessed me by coming out. And these have been difficult, challenging times. And as we've been maneuvering through all this, um, you know, pandemic stuff and restrictions and everything, you know, you always wonder, do people want to come out? To, um, are they going to come out? Should we come out? And every Sunday, I'm greatly encouraged um, that you guys are wanting to come out and fellowship. I want to welcome you online, too. And uh, I can't wait till the time when we get through this and uh, we can freely come and not have to worry about all the things that are of concern. But as we enter into the Thanksgiving season and Christmas season, I just want to remind us that we have so much reason to be thankful for, even through the difficulties and the uncertainty and the challenges. And um, I'm sure that a lot of us uh, this year has been um, so you know overwhelming in, in different ways. But this Thanksgiving, we have reason to be thankful because we have the Lord, and he's still on the th throne, and fear doesn't sit on the throne. I was thinking of that as we were singing. And I'm so grateful for you, and I'm grateful for the family of God. He said he will not leave us as orphans, and, and he is with us, and he's going to see us through, and he's working in this church and in our lives. His promises are still true. His love is there. I think about Paul the Apostle. He was writing to the church of Philippi, and it was a time of uncertainty for him. He said, I don't know whether I'm going to be released or be put to death. And he writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And that is a message for us today. And then as we enter into the Christmas season, you know, during that time, as many of you know, that the people lived in fear. It was a very difficult time. And, you know, they had a lot of uncertainty. And that message was given the very first message of the angel as he proclaimed it to the shepherds was what? Don't be afraid. For born unto you in the city of David, a Savior, Christ the Lord. And this is good tidings to all people. Not just to you shepherds or the people of Israel, but to all peoples. And that's the message that I pray that and hope that we carry in our hearts this holiday season. And as we end this year and into the new year, I don't know what the weeks, the months hold for us. But I do know who holds us in his hands, and that is the Lord. And uh, it's a privilege for us every single time that we have opportunity to be able to meet. So uh, I'm just encouraged by you guys being here in three services and people coming out. And, and um, I pray that you're protected um, during this time, that the Lord blesses you and your family and um, your time with him. And uh, maybe this holiday season we'll be able to slow down a little bit and just really... Just meditate on the things of the Lord, the, the coming of Jesus, and to remember he's coming back. And that's my prayer for all of us. So um, we are going to have a Bible study. So you want to get your Bibles ready for Matthew chapter 12. We're journeying through Matthew. A couple quick announcements. Again, the e-bulletins go out every Thursday afternoon. And so it, we have it on the website, calvarychapelgreeley.org. We also send it out by email. And if you want that, it comes to me and I look at it right when it comes to my email. If you want it by email, just say so and uh, let us know and we'll make sure that you get it by email. And also, as you look at the bulletin, everything's updated. It's updated uh, constantly and uh, so all that information is there. The things that are coming up this week is collection week for Operation Christmas Child. So bring your shoe boxes back. Uh, the, the hours posted that will be here uh, 
collecting shoe boxes scale. Uh, it, it's going to look a little different. It's going to be a curbside. It's going to be out in the parking lot. Uh, but be praying for us. Be praying for those who are going to be working during OCC. And we're going to handle every box with love and with care. And those shoe boxes, most of you know the ministry of Operation Christmas Child. They will go out to different parts of the world. I think most of the shoe boxes here go to Central uh, America uh, in this part and maybe South America. But uh, in the shoe boxes, as you gather things to bless a child, uh, the gospel is presented with pamphlets that they put in there. And it's just a, a powerful tool to get the gospel all throughout the world. And uh, that's what we're going to pray for. And you get to be a part of that. From getting a shoebox, it's not too late. Get one out at the information desk. Put it together. Bring it back during collection week, which will start tomorrow, 8 o'clock. And look at the hours that are posted because the hours are different every day. Uh, and we'll be here till the 23rd. That's a week from tomorrow. And uh, we're looking forward to doing that once again, even though it's going to look a little different this year. Uh, other things that are there, um, there is middle schoolers that are going to meet uh, after uh, service, 12, 15 to 1.30, so I need to let you know about that, parents. And uh, there's Koinia Fellowship on Saturday, Jim and Rhonda Ayers, so you can register for that as you look at uh, all the information concerning that home fellowship. Other things that are there, the men and women are going to be uh, ending the, uh, their Bible studies on Tuesday night. And then we'll see about when we pick that up after the holiday season. So uh, we're moving forward and uh, looking forward to what the Lord has for us. And uh, you should be in Matthew chapter 12. And Father, we do come. We ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. What a privilege it is for the body of Christ to gather together. And Lord, I know it pleases you. So I pray that you would just honor it, protect us. Protect all those that are here during the holiday season because we're looking at gathering with family, with friends. And Lord, it's a challenge right now. It's the uncertainty whether we should or shouldn't. And Lord, I just pray for your guidance and direction. You made us to fellowship with you. And I'm thankful that we can do that on a daily basis, that we have relationship with you. It's not just about religion. But Lord, you also made us to fellowship with each other. And, Lord, family is important, and we're a family. And, Lord, I'm grateful that we can gather in this place during the week. Lord, we ask that you would just bless um, the workers who come and, and for Operation Christmas Child, that every shoebox that is unloaded out of cars, trailers, um, trunks of cars, uh, trucks, Lord, that they be handled with love and with care. And as they go to the child, you know exactly which child is going to receive those shoe boxes, that the gospel would be presented, that, that kids and families would come to Jesus Christ. And Lord, that we would have that message to, to the people around us. And Lord, I pray that today's teaching would be a great encouragement. And Lord, that you would take your word and lift us up and encourage us, challenge us even. And Lord, but we would leave this place being edified, comforted. And Lord, that we would be instructed and Lord blessed in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you've been with us in our study of Matthew, as we journey through Matthew's gospel here, keep in mind that Matthew's writing to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. That indeed, that he's the king of kings, the king of Israel, but the king of all kings. 
And Matthew writing with that intention, as we saw in chapter 3, we see the moment of the Messiah. That is when Jesus comes on the scene. He comes to the river Jordan where John the Baptist is baptizing, uh, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He spoke of Jesus. He pointed to Jesus. He would declare Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then as we moved into chapter 5, we saw the message from the Messiah. As Jesus came and spoke with great authority, as he said, I say unto you, we're going to read that even today. When he says that, he's speaking with authority. The people marveled that he spoke with such authority. And he would give these wonderful principles, these wonderful truths, which we as believers are to live. As Jesus gave that Sermon on the Mount, that's in chapters 5 through 7. So we saw that Jesus, in that teaching, would show us that indeed we need him. We need the Savior of the world. He would declare that your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The disciples would think, how can we do that? No one's more righteous than them. But the purpose of the sermon was to drive us to Jesus, tell us how much we need Jesus, because Jesus said, I know the heart, and we're all guilty. It isn't just outward appearance and religiousness. It's inward attitude and devotion. And once you recognize your need for me, this is how you should live with the help of the Holy Spirit that dwells in our hearts. And then after that sermon, we moved into chapters 8 and moving through chapter 11. We go from the moment of the Messiah, the message from the Messiah, to the miracles of the Messiah. Uh, we see Jesus working great miracles healing all kinds of sickness and disease, freeing the demoniacs, and even raising the dead. And, and as we did, now chapter 12, we see the mounting against the Messiah. That is, the religious leaders are now plotting against the king. The religious leaders are upset at Jesus. They're wanting to mount opposition against him, so much so that we saw, as we left off last time, the Pharisees, desiring to have Jesus be put to death because he had healed that man with a withered hand in a synagogue on the Sabbath day. And the Sabbath, as we discussed, was the most important law of the Pharisees in which they were to keep. And the Pharisees, Pharisees as we discussed, had put in all kinds of rules and regulations to follow in order to keep the Sabbath rest. They made all kinds of interpretations on what constitutes work and what you couldn't do on the Sabbath day. And one of the rules that they held to was there was to be no healing on the Sabbath day. And when Jesus walked into that synagogue and healed that man whose hand was paralyzed, we read in verse 14 again in Matthew chapter 12 that then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. So as we look at Matt, uh, Mark's gospel, his account of that story, it's interesting that after Jesus healed this man with the withered hand, that the Pharisees, Mark tells us, plotted with the Herodians and how they might destroy Jesus. Now that's interesting because as we travel through the gospels, we see that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are kind of linked together. They're the religious sects. The Pharisees are the dedicated ones. They were the ones that were dedicated to keeping of the law. And many of the scribes became Pharisees because they interpreted the law. They wanted to keep the law. But then the Sadducees, they would consist 
of a lot of the chief priests and the elders that you read about. And the Sadducees, they didn't believe in much of anything. They, they had more power. They were generally more wealthy. They controlled the selling of the oxen and sheep and the sacrifices in the temple there for the feast and the, the exchange of money. We'll talk about that as we travel through Matthew's gospel. But the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in coming Messiah. They didn't believe in any miracles. They didn't believe in much of anything. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees were ones that were at odds with each other. But when you read about the Herodians, who were the Herodians that Mark mentions plotted with the Pharisees at this point in Jesus' ministry to have them be put to death? The Herodians were a political party, and it is believed that some of the Jews who were tax collectors, and who was that? Matthew? Remember, Matthew was a tax collector. The Pharisees hated the tax collectors. Remember that Jesus called Matthew to follow him. Matthew goes to his house. He invites the other tax collectors and sinners to have dinner and, uh, with Jesus as he invited Jesus over, and we went over that very carefully. The Pharisees come along. They see that. And they said to the disciples, how can your teacher, your master, eat with these tax collectors and sinners? What's wrong? So they hated the tax collectors. So some of the Jews who were tax collectors belonged to the sect of the Herodians. All of a sudden now, their hatred that they had for each other comes to a stop. And they come together and they're plotting together to have Jesus be put to death. They're coming together in unity to try to destroy Jesus. I mention that because we see the same thing happen today. You will see groups of people that uh, their common hatred for Jesus, their common hatred for Christianity, the Bible, the Word of God, they will come together. They will come together in opposition against you and against me. And they will unite people that otherwise would have nothing to do with each other. So here we see this same thing is happening. These two groups that have nothing to do with each other, they come together that they might destroy him. But as we continue now in verse 15, but when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. A great multitude followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known. So the crowds are continuing to be great, a great multitudes. They're, they're following Jesus, tens of thousands of people pouring into the Galilee region. Now, we know from the other Gospels that they were coming from clear down south in Edom, which is down by Arabia, on the east side of the Jordan River. We know that they were coming from the cities of the Decapolis. They were coming from Tyre and Sidon, which is uh, today Lebanon, from up north. They're coming from all that region to Galilee to, to follow Jesus, to receive healing from him. And, and Jesus is continuing to do amazing miracles verse 17 that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying behold my servant whom I have chosen my beloved whom my soul is well pleased I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles he will not quarrel nor cry out nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets and a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name, Gentiles will trust. So Matthew now is quoting from Isaiah chapter 42. Again, keep in mind that Matthew's gospel is to show us that Jesus is the king of kings, the coming Messiah, written to the Jewish audience 
So Matthew here quotes from the Old Testament prophets concerning the ministry of Jesus, and uh, he does it more than any of the other gospel writers. And he's showing that Jesus came along and fulfilled those prophecies, including what we read here uh, in the text before us. Uh, that's written in Isaiah chapter 42. God the Father, behold my servant, whom I have chosen. That is Jesus, the perfect servant. He said that I come not to be served, but be the servant of all. I will put my spirit upon him. And of course, we saw in Matthew chapter 3, at the baptism of Jesus, the spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove. He heard the voice of the father say what? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then we see this beautiful, very wonderful character of Jesus. As Isaiah quotes, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. That's good news for us this morning, isn't it? Now, a year ago, we got back from Israel, and it was the end of the dry season, and, and it was beginning of the wet season that comes in the wintertime in Israel. But in the dry season, it gets hot, and the Sea of Galilee, which is about 800 feet below sea level, gets very warm. And the reeds around there, as the water begins to decrease, because they use the Sea of Galilee for agricultural purposes, but the reeds begin to dry out, and they begin to um, be dry. They're very fragile, uh, easily broken if you walk through them. And the good news for you and for me is we read about the ministry of the Messiah. Just as that reed is fragile, easily broken, that in our lives and in our spiritual life and in our hearts, when there is dryness, and we become fragile, and we struggle. The Lord doesn't come along just stomp on us. Will you remember that? And you can hear those who will say, you need to be on fire. You need to be on fire like I am. I'm on fire for the Lord. Well, that's good, but I'll be honest with you. Sometimes I'm not always on fire. Sometimes I feel like I'm just smoldering. There are days in this year even that I, I just wanted to hide under my covers. And I just wanted to stay there for the morning. But as we consider this, you know, the Lord doesn't come along and just dump a bunch of water on us. And yet sometimes we can, and people can picture God in that way. And that's why I love to read the Gospels. Because keep in mind that, that the picture can be of Christians, that God is mean and judgmental and you know, ready to get you if you get out of line. And Jesus is there to run interference. But remember that Jesus said to Philip, Philip said, show us the Father that it may suffice us. And Jesus said, oh, Philip, you've been with me all this time. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus would declare that the Father and I are one. To know me is to know him. We know that he's the only begotten of the Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him. And in Colossians chapter 1, Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So we study him carefully because as we study Jesus, as we see him, his ministry, we see the heart and the compassion and the love and the mercy of our Father towards us, his grace towards us. And he doesn't break a bruised reed. And maybe you're here and you're bruised for whatever reason. And as you turn to him, and as you look to him, he wants to bind you up. He wants to sure you up. Uh, he wants to sure up that which can easily be broken. 
And maybe you are smoldering. You're not on fire. As you turn to him, he likes to cup that flax that is smoking. He gently fans it back to bring that flame back into our hearts. And that's what he desires to do for you today and every day as we come to him. To just say, Lord, help me. And I live by faith. And I come to you. And I feel fragile. And I'm bruised right now. And you know how it is when you're bruised, when somebody gets close to, you know, you got a bruised arm or something touching it, you kind of pull away. And you feel like pulling away from the Lord to go to him and allow him to minister to you and to bring that warmth back into your heart. I'm so grateful for the ministry of Jesus to us in every day as we look to him. He doesn't stop loving us. In verse 22, the one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, Could this be the son of David? Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And as we've discussed how the Pharisees, they never disputed that Jesus did miracles. They were saying that he does it by the power of Satan, and as they were saying that, they were doing it because they were determined, as we saw in verse 14 of the chapter, we want to put him to death. And people now are amazed. They're seeing the works that he's doing. They've never seen anything like this. So could this be the son of David? And of course, that's a messianic term. We know that in 2 Samuel, the promise that God gave to David is that the Messiah is going to come from your descendants, from your line, David, sit upon your throne. So that was a messianic term, the son of David. Could this be the Messiah? We've never seen anything like this, what it is that he's doing. He's speaking with great authority. And so as the Pharisees are hearing the reaction of the people, they want to dismiss that, uh, the notion that he is Messiah, that he's the son of David. So they come up with this explanation. Oh, he's healing and casting out demons by the power of Satan, Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies. It was a Philistine deity. And so Jesus responds by telling them it's foolish to think the, that I'm working by the power of Satan. Let's read about that in verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against himself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And verse 29, Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. So if Satan is casting out Satan demons, then Satan's house is divided. He's fighting against himself. And why would he do that? It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. Uh, Satan is not dumb. Matter of fact, Satan's pretty smart. He is smart enough to know how to deceive and how to trick and how to lie and how to ruin people's lives. But Jesus also makes it very clear that he is the one that has power over Satan. And for that, we can be very thankful. 
But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, verse 28, you Pharisees should understand that there is one among you who is unique and powerful, and, and you should be acknowledging that. You should be acknowledging me, who is stronger than Satan. I'm casting out demons because I am demonstrating the power of God, the Spirit of God. And I like what Luke records in this of Jesus saying, that Luke records that he says, by the finger of God. And the reason I like that, it isn't by all the powerful muscles of God or by the, the arm of God or by the fist of God. It's kind of like the finger, ping, the finger of God. You see, there are people, there are even Christians, that think that Satan is the opposite equal of God. There's been this battle going throughout the ages, and it's back and forth, and who's going to win? And, and it's the you know, kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness and all of this. And I want you to understand this, that Satan is no match for God. He's not the opposite equal of God. He's a created being, Lucifer, who fell and became Satan. And Jesus would say when the disciples, the 70, came back in Luke's gospel, that I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. God just spoke. We know that Revelation chapter 20, this is quite interesting, that after the second coming of Jesus Christ, as recorded in, in Revelation chapter 19, chapter 20 speaks of, then an angel comes and he binds Satan up with this chain and throws him into the bottomless pit and seals the pit so he can't get out for a thousand years. So he's sealed during the millennium reign of Jesus Christ till the end. And then we see that he'll be let out for a short time. That's a study for another time. But it's not Jesus that binds him up. It's not even the mention of Michael the archangel who battles with Satan in Revelation chapter 12. It's just an angel. An angel comes, binds him up with a change, body slams him into the bottomless pit and seals it. So he's not the opposite equal of God. He's not all powerful like God is. But he is more powerful than you. And he's more powerful than me. We know that he's called the master deceiver. We know that Ephesians says that he steals and robs. Jesus said that he's the father of lies and the murderer. Revelation chapter 12 tells us he's the accuser of the brethren who accuses us day and night. So the thing to keep in mind and to remember concerning Satan is that he is real. That the people that we read about here in the Gospels are demon-possessed. And I believe it can happen today, not with Christians. I don't believe that Christians can be demon-possessed. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we have the Holy Spirit of God that is in our hearts. But Satan will try to oppress us. He'll war against us. He'll throw the fiery darts at us. And we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. He desires to ruin your life. He desires to get a foothold into your family, to your kids, in your marriage, in your ministry, in this church. And he condemns you and me constantly, Revelation chapter 12. But he is not as powerful as our God. Matter of fact, he's been defeated. Colossians chapter 2, you want to read it, speaks about how Satan was defeated. Jesus, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 
which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers as Satan and his demons, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Those are military terms, making a public spectacle of them, having disarmed principalities. You see, the Romans at this time, when they defeated a city or the enemy, they would strip that, that army, they would strip the generals naked, and they would parade them, make a public spectacle of them through the streets of the city that they conquered to embarrass them, to humiliate them. Jesus has died for our sins. And when Satan accuses us constantly, it tells us in Revelation chapter 12 that he was overcome by, number one, the blood of the Lamb. That he is overcome because Jesus died for you and for me. And when he whispers in our ears that God doesn't love you, that he doesn't care for you, you're not forgiven, he doesn't want to work in your life, his word isn't true for you, we can say that, number one, that I'm forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. He died for me because of his love for me. And second of all, Revelation chapter 12 tells us by the word of the testimony that his word is true, that he's with me. He promised never to leave me or forsake me. I'm in his hand and no one will pluck me out. And to remember what James says, that we are to submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. Let me say that again, James that you are to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is a promise in Scripture given to you and to me. So when he comes along and he says, God doesn't love you, you're a spiritual waste, he'll never use you, he's not with you, and he begins to accuse us day and night, we can overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of testimony. Remember that. And to remember, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan no longer has power over you. Or authority. Oh, yeah, he'll try to war against you. He will. So put on the whole armor of God. He'll throw the fiery darts at you. He'll try to oppress you. But the strong man has been bound, Jesus said. And I will establish the kingdom. I can't wait till he does that. I can't wait till the kingdom is established and no more Satan to do his work. But in the meantime, we see Satan's work all around us. We see his work against us. Don't let him get a foothold into your life. And then Jesus says in verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Very important. It really amazes me today how there are those who claim to be Bible teachers, pastors that are ministry leaders. They're very neutral when it comes to Jesus. And Jesus makes it very clear you cannot be neutral. Jesus said you must be either with me or you're against me. Being with him means you recognize who he is, that he is Lord, that he is the Savior of the world, that he is the way to heaven. There are those today that say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher or just another spiritual leader. Uh, you know, Jesus was the brother of Lucifer or Michael the archangel. And we know as we read the Bible who Jesus truly is, God incarnate in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, who came and died for you and for me. And he is the way to the Father. There's no other way. You can't be neutral. Now remember that the religious leaders are against him, trying to get others to go against him. He works by Satan. And Jesus, given this warning as the people will begin to pull away, you need to make a clear decision. And then in verse 31, Therefore I say to you, again speaking with authority, 
that every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. So Jesus tells us all manner of sin will be forgiven except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now sometimes there's confusion with what that means. What is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? In John's Gospel, Jesus tells us of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that he will testify of me. The work of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That's John chapter 16, verse 8. Jesus, earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 8, verse 24, would say to those religious leaders that if you do not believe that I am he, that you will die in your sins. Now, I've had Christians over the years that have called me up, and they read this verse, and they said, oh, I'm concerned. Uh, I, I believe that maybe I committed to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit because I rejected the Lord. I, I used his name in vain. I, I cursed his name at one time. I didn't want anything to do with the Lord. So is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? No. You see, who was one that was a blasphemer? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He persecuted the church. He killed Christians. It was Paul the Apostle. And Paul, he would come to the Lord, and he knew he was forgiven. And I believe that's one of the reasons that Paul was such a champion of grace is because I am forgiven. He would call himself the chiefest of sinners. But he says, forgetting all those things which are behind, I press forward to those things which are ahead. Therefore, call of God in Christ Jesus. I move forward to the prize. So he knew the forgiveness of the Lord. So many of us that have come through the services this morning, at one time we were against the Lord. Maybe we, we cursed the Lord, used his name in vain at that time, rejected the gospel, but the Lord didn't give up on us and drew us as we finally responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that you need to repent, give your life to Jesus Christ, and we did, and we're forgiven. You know, I, I denied the Lord at one time. Well, Peter denied the Lord. He denied the Lord three times, and yet you see that wonderful chapter in John chapter 21 that Jesus would forgive Peter there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and restore him and commission him to ministry, and Peter was a leader in the early church. We also know that some of the Pharisees got saved. Jesus here is speaking to those religious leaders. You're in danger of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And some of the Pharisees got saved after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know Paul is, was one example, but also we know that in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council, there is Paul and Barnabas and the guys, the leaders uh, there in Antioch. They come up to Jerusalem. They meet with James and, and Peter and John, the leaders in Jerusalem, and they have this, this meeting. They need to come up with a conclusion of what is it that we're going to tell the Gentile believers. Do they need to be circumcised? Do they have to keep the law of Moses? And it tells us that there was a sect of the Pharisees that were there that were saying, yes, they must. And even though those Pharisees didn't understand the grace of God, they were believers in Jesus Christ. So some of them came to be believers after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's interesting, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
you go into the book of Acts, it's mostly the Sadducees that didn't take the front of coming against the Christians because they didn't believe, again, in angels. They didn't believe in uh, miracles. They didn't believe in the coming Messiah. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they're hearing reports that Jesus rose from the grave and there was angels at the tombs and, and that he indeed is Lord. So they're the ones that would step forward and really be the leaders persecuting the Christians. But as we read this, we know that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a continual rejection of Jesus as Lord and Savior. That he is my forgiveness, provision of forgiveness of sin. That he is the only way. So not believing and receiving Jesus as Savior and Lord, you remain in your sins. So a continual listen and complete, you come to the end of your life of rejecting the Holy Spirit, bearing witness of Jesus, of being God's provision for your sins. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And I think that this section of Matthew reminds us of how important it is, first of all, to pray for the lost. Because Satan desires to continue to blind and to deceive, and that we are committed to clearly telling the gospel to others that Jesus is the way, not a way, but the way, the truth, and the life. As Peter would declare in Acts chapter 4, that neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. That message needs to be clear, especially in the day in which we're living in, when there's so much deception and there's mixed messages and a lot of voices that are out there. They're saying, oh, just be a good person. I bet that every single one of you knows somebody who thinks they're going to go to heaven because they're a good person. And we can tell them that, you know what? You're a good person, but here's the problem. You're not good enough. You're not good enough because no one is. And that's why Jesus came and died on the cross for you, for your sins, because we're all sinners in need of forgiveness. You know, people say that just believe in anything, be sincere. Well, you can be sincerely wrong. And if you believe in any other for salvation than Jesus Christ, then you're going to be lost. He is our salvation. There's none other. It's not coming to church. It's not, you know, trusting in the pastor. It's not trusting in your own goodness. It is surrender your life to Jesus and ask for forgiveness to allow him to sit upon the throne of your heart as personal Lord and Savior. So number one, we can make that message very clear. But second of all, if there is anyone here this morning, you're here in this place or you're listening online or on the radio later, that you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, please make a decision for him. Because today is the day of salvation. And what happens is people can hear the gospel and they feel the prompting of the Lord and and they kind of push it away. And each time they hear the gospel, their hearts get a little bit harder. And it gets easier to reject that message. Don't harden your heart to the gospel. There will be a time where your life will come to an end. And there is no second chances. It's appointed once for man to die and then the judgment. There's no purgatory. That's a man-made you know, doctrine made up. There's no purgatory. There's heaven and there's hell. And Jesus talked a lot about hell. And Jesus here is telling us very clearly, if you do not make a decision for him, the one who has come and provided 
forgiveness of sin and right relationship with the Father and eternal life as we come in faith that you will be lost for eternity. Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment is very real. Not because Pastor Jeff says so, but God declares it in his word. So this is a very important warning. And if you haven't given your heart to Jesus, give your heart to him today. He loves you so much. He is your salvation. Open your heart to him. But for all of us, that we want to give that message to others. You know, I think one of the other things that Satan does, this is what Satan does. He will sell us a bill of goods thinking that we can't share the gospel with anyone. I don't know enough. They won't like me. They will end up hating me. They'll see me as being judgmental or, you know, all these other things that he sells us a bill of goods. Listen, we have the message of hope. Peter said, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where will we go? Where would we go? It reminds me, I've told you this story of 2 Kings 7 when those who were outside of Samaria was sieged by the Syrians and, and there was four guys, they were lepers and outside the city and the people were starving inside of Samaria. They were about ready to starve to death and all of a sudden the lepers are out there saying, we're going to die too, so we might as well go surrender to the Syrians. So they go to the camp of the Syrians and they notice everybody vacated the camp. The, the weapons are all laying there, the smoke is smoldering. Even the, the pots that they were eating out of was still warm. So they went from pot to pot. They went from tent to tent. They were taking the spoils. And finally, one of them said, why are we doing this? Why do we hold this good news? We can't just keep it to ourselves. We need to go share it to the people of Samaria. So they went there and said, hey, the Syrians are gone. And the reason they were gone is because God worked and scared them and they all ran away. But they said, they're gone. No more captivity. You're, you're free. You can go out. And the people stormed the gates. They ran out and they went to the camp and took the spoils and all of this. But they were saying, those, those lepers, how can we keep this news to ourselves? How can we do that? We got good news to share. And it isn't that we are obnoxious, but Lord, give me the opportunity to share. And we are a witness, not only with the words that we speak, but the way that we live our life. And during this time, this is a time where people can see the reality of Jesus in us the love of Jesus Christ, the grace of Jesus Christ, and they will come and say, there's something different about you. Not that they're going to see perfection. They'll never see perfection. But your countenance, the joy of the Lord, your compassion, your grace, and we can tell them, it's because of my Lord who looked out at the multitudes with compassion, remember? Remember? The one who stood on the hillside and said, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden. Now, let me tell you what he did for you. That he died for your sins. And he rose again. And he's alive. And he loves you and wants you to come to him. And we can minister to people and we can give them the message of hope. And doesn't the world today need that message more than ever? Yes. No? Yes. Amen. So as we are going to gather this season, Thanksgiving and Christmas, with family, and I know we're all wrestling with that and how we do that, but at least we'll be talking with them or gathering with them and others. Pray about, Lord, I want to give that message. For unto you this day is born in the city of David 
a Savior, Christ the Lord. As we bring good tidings of great joy to the people around us, that Jesus Christ came to this world to give you the greatest gift, the gift of eternal life, the free gift of salvation as you give your heart to him. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for these passages that remind us how important it is to make a decision for you. So first of all, I, I just want to pray if there's anyone here listening or on the radio later that you have not made a decision for Jesus, that he loves you, he is your salvation, he went to a cross and died for you, he rose again. Every other religious leader is in the grave. Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, they didn't conquer sin and death. Only Jesus did. There's a tomb that's empty in Jerusalem. And he proved that he's the son of God and validated what he did on the cross of Calvary. He died for you because of his love for you. And he cried out, it is finished. I did the work. I paid the price. And as you call on the name of the Lord, coming in faith, realizing your need to be forgiven, to ask him to sit upon the throne of your heart as the Lord and Savior, you will be saved. You will be forgiven. You can do that right now. If that means anything to anyone listening right now, that you can pray, Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I know you died on that cross for me. Forgive me. And I believe that you are alive because you're speaking to my heart. The Holy Spirit is, is testifying to me that you are real. And I ask that you sit upon the throne of my heart as my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you and walk with you. And I thank you for this new beginning. And I thank you for bringing me into the family of God. In Jesus' name. And for all of us, that we would be sensitive this season that we're in, in the darkness that is around us, and when we, even when we get overwhelmed ourselves, but we have a message to give. And that is Jesus Christ is Lord. The words of eternal life to give to others. And Lord, we wouldn't be afraid to do that. But just allowing you to lead us and guide us as you open those doors to minister. And Father, I do pray that as we find ourselves where we feel like we're bruised or smoldering, just struggling, we know that you desire to bind us up and sure us up, to warm our hearts, to just know of your love and compassion and grace. Thank you that you don't come along and just give up on us. You will not leave us orphans, but you will be with us all the days of our lives. Bless everyone here. Protect us as we go out this week. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand? If anyone made a decision for the Lord, I'd love to pray with you. And then second of all, if you just need prayer, I'd love to just be here and pray with you. God bless you as you go your way. Don't forget about Wednesday, 7 o'clock online service, the book of Jeremiah, the prophecies of Babylon. I think you'll find it to be very fascinating. God bless you. Travis Conkle.